You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. This episode of the podcast contains explicit language. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 382 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, with the last show, we started to talk about the story of the 54th Massachusetts. At the end of the last episode, it was May 1863, and the 54th was going off to war, sailing away from Boston and headed for Port Royal, South Carolina. The path that took the men of the 54th to South Carolina had been a long one, born of idealism and fraught with difficulty. That they had succeeded in the face of bigotry and doubt was due in equal measures to their own fierce resolve and to the determination of the colonel who led them. Despite his initial misgivings, 25-year-old Robert Gould Shaw had assumed the weighty responsibilities of commanding a regiment of black troops, and he never wavered in his fervent resolve to show friend and foe alike that his men were the fighting equals of white soldiers. However, once Shaw and the 54th arrived at Port Royal and reported for duty in the Department of the South, reality set in when they were relegated to performing manual labor. Not until June 8th, when the Bay Staters joined Colonel James Montgomery and the black troops of his 2nd South Carolina Volunteers on an expedition to Georgia, did they see any action. And that was a pointless raid on the small town of Darien. After plundering the hundred or so residences, three churches, the market house, courthouse, and a school, Montgomery ordered Darien set afire. Shaw was appalled, but reluctantly obeyed the order and directed one of his companies to torch the town. The flames, fanned by high winds, eventually destroyed everything but one of the churches and a few houses. Afterward, Shaw wrote to Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halpine, the acting adjutant general of the department, to condemn, quote, this barbarous sort of warfare, end quote. Shaw knew his complaint could result in his arrest or even court-martial, but he felt compelled to express his feelings. He later learned that Montgomery, unfortunately, had acted in accordance with the orders of the department commander, General David Hunter, 
However, about the time of the Darien Raid, the unpopular hunter was recalled to Washington, and a new commander took charge of the Department of the South, General Quincy Gilmore, who took command on June 11th. Shaw was discouraged by the sacking and burning of Darien and the manual labor his troops were compelled to do. He wrote to the commander of Montgomery's brigade, Brigadier General George Strong, saying, quote, Our whole experience so far has been in loading and discharging vessels. Colored soldiers should be associated as much as possible with the white troops in order that they may have other witnesses, besides their own officers, to what they are capable of doing. That opportunity finally arrived on July 16, 1863, when a portion of the 54th, finding themselves fighting alongside white troops on James Island outside Charleston, acquitted themselves well in a sharp skirmish with the enemy. That same night, they were ferried over to Morris Island, where battle lines had already been drawn for the anticipated federal attack on Battery Wagner. The new Federal Department commander, Quincy Gilmore, could be forgiven for feeling overly confident as he planned his assault on Charleston, South Carolina in July 1863. You see, a little more than a year earlier, Gilmore had won wide acclaim for leading the swift and relatively bloodless capture of Fort Pulaski, the brick-walled rebel bastion that protected Savannah, Georgia. The victory at Fort Pulaski had fueled Gilmore's considerable ambition and from the moment of his arrival to command the Department of the South, he had set his sights on the capture of Charleston. Gilmore assumed the smooth success he had enjoyed at Fort Pulaski could be replicated at Charleston, which would ensure his everlasting fame, since to many people in the North, Charleston was the very birthplace of the rebellion from which the first shots of the war had been fired. In addition, the current Confederate commander of the city's defenses was none other than General P.G.T. Beauregard, the very same rebel officer who had led the attack on Fort Sumter back in April 1861. Beauregard commanded some 6,000 Confederate troops, as well as more than 40 batteries and forts. The task of even getting close to Charleston was made more difficult for the Federals by the marshy islands that surrounded the approaches to the city, since the swampy ground made it challenging to position men and artillery. The biggest obstacle was Fort Sumter itself, in the middle of the harbor. But despite the difficulties facing the Federals, Gilmore viewed the capture of Charleston as nothing more than a logical sequence of actions that needed to be taken in order to bring ever-increasing pressure upon the city and its defenses. As he had at Fort Pulaski, Gilmore made certain that his efforts at Charleston were coordinated with the Union Navy. Gilmore planned to work closely with Rear Admiral John Dahlgren's squadron as the Federal Infantry first seized Morris Island, whose low-lying sands commanded the approaches to the inner harbor. Then, from Cummings Point, on the island's northern tip, the Federals would be able to bombard Fort Sumter. Once Sumter was reduced, Dahlgren's ships would be able to steam into the inner harbor and directly threaten Charleston itself. 
But in order to get up to Cummings Point at the northern tip of Morris Island, Gilmore's 11,000 Federal Infantry would first have to deal with Wagner and also Battery Gregg, the rebel fortifications that guarded the upper third of four-mile-long Morris Island. And FYI, we'll be referring to Wagner as Battery Wagner, although by the summer of 1863 it was technically a fort. You see, it had originally been constructed as a battery, but although subsequent work had made it into a fully enclosed fort by July of 1863, the Confederates continued to refer to it as Battery Wagner. So we will too. So there you go. Okay. Well, in any case, the first part of Gilmore's plan went off without a hitch. In the early morning hours of July 10th, Brigadier General George Strong's brigade made a surprise landing on the southern tip of Morris Island and overwhelmed the rebel defenders there. Strong quickly moved north up the island, capturing 150 prisoners along the way. He might very well have also overrun Wagner then and there, but Gilmore held him back since the day's objectives had already been met and he was, apparently, unwilling to deviate from the plan. The Federals renewed their advance the next day, July 11th, and did assault Wagner then, but the rebels, given time to prepare, stopped strong with heavy losses. And so the first attempt to storm Battery Wagner ended with 330 Union casualties and only 12 Confederate. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. As more federal troops moved to Morris Island after the failed July 11th assault, Gilmore pondered his next move. 
He realized Wagner was going to be a tough nut to crack. As I mentioned just a few minutes ago, Wagner had originally been constructed, starting in the summer of 1862, as an ordinary open field battery with palmetto log revetments for the cannon positioned there. It was originally called the neck battery since it was placed astride the narrowest piece of easily traversable terrain on the northern end of Morris Island. That work was done when John C. Pemberton commanded Charleston's defenses. When PGT Beauregard returned to Charleston to take command of the city's defenses after Pemberton's departure, he built up the neck battery and renamed it Battery Wagner, after Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Wagner, a South Carolina artillery officer who was killed in 1863 by the bursting of a gun at Fort Moultrie across the harbor. The additional work Beauregard had ordered to be done meant that by July of 1863, Wagner was a fully enclosed fort with sand and earthen walls 30 feet high. They sloped down to a water-filled moat or ditch 10 feet wide and 5 feet deep. Within the fortification, a 1,700-man garrison manned 14 cannon, including a 10-inch Columbiad that could fire a 128-pound shell. Buried across the beach, up which the Federals would have to attack, were a series of landmines and also razor-sharp palmetto stakes capable of impaling any Yankee soldier unfortunate enough to fall on them. Complicating matters for the attackers was the fact that the ground in front of the moat narrowed to about 100 yards between a creek and swamps to the west and the Atlantic Ocean to the east, so that any large body of troops assaulting Wagner would be funneled into a compact killing zone along the beach. Despite his reputation as an expert with big guns, which he had used to batter the walls of Fort Pulaski, Gilmore had launched his July 11th attack on Wagner without artillery support. Determined not to repeat that mistake, he decided to proceed his second effort with a heavy cannonade from both land and sea. At a quarter after eight on the morning of Saturday, July 18th, Federal artillery batteries on Morris Island began bombarding Wagner. They were quickly joined by fire from Dahlgren's ships offshore. The combined firepower of the Federal field guns and naval cannon caused considerable damage, but few casualties among the Confederate defenders, even when the rising tide allowed USS New Ironsides and five other ironclads to steam within 300 yards of Wagner and unleash a fearful barrage. The cannonade, one of the heaviest of the war, lasted 11 hours. Gilmore was confident that after such a pounding, an attack by land now would be too much for the rebels to withstand. Division Commander Brigadier General Truman Seymour tapped Strong's brigade to spearhead the assault. Seymour, an avowed racist, wished the 54th Massachusetts to lead the attack, infamously remarking that the resulting casualties might have the benefit of ridding him of the black soldiers under his command. However, Brigade Commander George Strong, who actually offered Shaw the job of leading the attack, had been impressed by the fighting a portion of the 54th had done over on James Island 
and genuinely wanted to see how the entire regiment would acquit themselves here leading the way during the assault on Wagner. For Robert Gouldshaw, there would have been no thought of refusing the assignment when Strong offered it to him. There was too much at stake. Shaw and his officers and every man in the ranks of the 54th Massachusetts knew that they were being given the opportunity they had been waiting for, the chance to prove that black soldiers could fight as well as their white counterparts. On the evening of July 18, 1863, the officers and men of the 54th Massachusetts stood in the light of the setting sun and steeled themselves to undertake the awesome task that now lay before them. The air was filled with the rumbling of big guns, and the very ground of Morris Island trembled beneath their feet. A mounted officer and his staff rode up. The officer was George Strong, and he now pointed up the beach to the sinister hump of a rebel earthwork that loomed ahead, amidst the boiling smoke and bursting shells. Strong loudly called out, asking, Is there a man here who thinks himself unable to sleep in that fort tonight? No, shouted the 54th in reply. The general then called over the color bearer who held the stars and stripes. Grasping the colors, Strong asked, If this man should fall, who will lift the flag and carry it on? After the briefest of pauses, Colonel Shaw stepped forward and said, I will. Shaw's pledge elicited what Adjutant Garth Wilkinson James later described as, quote, The deafening cheers of this mighty host of men about to plunge themselves into the fiery vortex of hell. 600 or so men of the 54th would be taking part in the assault on Wagner. For the attack, Shaw had arranged them into two lines, five companies in the first line, five behind. Shaw positioned himself with the national colors in the first line, while Lieutenant Colonel Edward Hallowell and the state flag were with the second line. The rest of Strong's brigade was lined up behind the 54th, the 6th Connecticut, 48th New York, 3rd New Hampshire, 76th Pennsylvania, and 9th Maine. Positioned farther down the beach was another brigade commanded by Colonel Haldenaud Putnam. At about a quarter to eight that evening, Shaw addressed his troops with a few final words of inspiration, telling them, The eyes of thousands will look upon what you do tonight. With that, he drew his sword, raised it, and the 54th started up the beach. Quincy Gilmore had been certain the 11-hour bombardment of Wagner from land and sea would destroy the rebel garrison's ability to resist the federal infantry assault that evening. But, in fact, the Confederate defenders had weathered the storm of shot and shell surprisingly well. Most of the garrison had spent the day in Wagner's bomb-proof shelter, and so they suffered few casualties from the hours-long cannonading. When they received word that the Yankee infantry was forming up down the beach, obviously readying to launch an assault, the rebels quickly manned the ramparts. 
The garrison was commanded by Brigadier General William Tolliver, a 40-year-old Virginian and veteran of Stonewall Jackson's campaigns in the Shenandoah Valley. To defend Wagner, Tolliver had the men of the 31st North Carolina, 51st North Carolina, and the Charleston Battalion. Troops from the 32nd Georgia would join them in repelling the Federal attack. The Confederate defenders readied themselves as the 54th Massachusetts began its grim march up the beach with bayonets fixed and muskets at the right shoulder. The march started off at quick time, then as the ramparts of Wagner drew closer, Shaw ordered the men into a jogging double quick time. When the regiment was about 150 yards from Wagner, where the beach narrowed between the swamp to the left and the ocean to the right, the rebels started firing. As soldiers began to fall all around him, Shaw ordered the charge, and the men of the 54th lowered their muskets, presenting a wall of bristling steel, and broke into a full run. Adjutant James later recalled the moment the rebels opened fire, saying, quote, A sheet of flame flashed out, followed by a running fire, like electric sparks, end quote. The enemy muskets and cannon blazing away in the twilight reminded James of a fireworks display he had once seen, but the thud of hot lead into human flesh and the screams of the wounded brought home to him the terrible reality of what was happening. Lashed by the relentless enemy musketry and cannon fire, men fell with every step, but Shaw, waving his sword, continued to move forward, and his soldiers followed him into the heart of the storm. They surged ahead, over the sharpened stakes, and through the water-filled ditch. Lieutenant Colonel Hallowell and Adjutant James were among those who fell wounded before reaching the ramparts, but Shaw, so far unhurt, clambered up the sandy slope, along with a determined knot of men, pressing ever onward. As Shaw reached the top of the slope, he stood and waved his sword and shouted, Forward, 54th! before he was killed by three point-blank shots. As the officers and men of the 54th continued to struggle forward, the fighting at times broke into brutal hand-to-hand combat. The Confederate defenders admitted later they were both infuriated and motivated by the fact they were fighting black soldiers. Some of the base staters made it to the top of the ramparts, where they engaged in a point-blank duel with rebels of the Charleston Battalion and 51st North Carolina, but they were unable to actually breach Wagner's defenses, and ultimately the soldiers of the 54th were forced to retreat. Sergeant Major Lewis Douglas, one of Frederick Douglass's sons serving with the regiment, had his sword ripped away by a blast of canister. He later wrote, Men fell all around me. A shell would explode and clear a space. Our men would close up again, but it was no use. We had to retreat, which was a very hazardous undertaking. How I got out of that fight alive, I cannot tell, but I am here. 23-year-old Sergeant William Carney, who had been born into slavery in Virginia, was making his way through the chaos when he saw the man bearing the stars and stripes stumble and fall after being hit. Carney threw away his musket, took up the flag, and carried it forward. 
When forced to retreat, Kearney carried the flag to safety despite multiple wounds. Upon reaching friendly lines, Kearney proudly declared, Boys, the dear old flag never touched the ground. For his bravery in bearing the flag to the top of the ramparts and then carrying it to safety, William Kearney earned the distinction of being the first of 21 black men during the Civil War to win the Medal of Honor. The 54th Massachusetts had shattered itself on the Confederate defenses, but now the rest of Strong's brigade came charging up to the water-filled ditch. Five regiments, each in column of companies, with the 300 men of Colonel John Chatfield's 6th Connecticut in the lead. Chatfield was shot in the leg and knocked out of the fight, but about a hundred of his men reached the top of the ramparts. As luck would have it, these Yankees had struck the rebel defenses at their weakest point. Soldiers of the 48th New York succeeded in following the Connecticut troops up the slopes of Wagner's southeast bastion, but few other Yankees were able to get that far. Three Confederate howitzers, blasting away with canister on the flanks of the Federal penetration, brought the 3rd New Hampshire, 76th Pennsylvania Zouaves, and 9th Maine to a bloody halt over on the far side of the ditch. Strong tried to get the charge moving again, but was mortally wounded in the thigh by a blast of canister. In shock and pain, Strong reluctantly gave the order for the brigade to retreat. However, by that time, amidst the flames and darkness, his regiments had already dissolved into chaos, with some men running for the rear, while others fought and died trying to claw their way forward. One officer would later say that, quote, the genius of Dante could but faintly portray the horrors of that hell of fire and smoke. By this time, it was 8.30 p.m., about 45 minutes after the charge began, and only now did Putnam bring forward his brigade to Strong's aid. Putnam's lead regiment, the 7th New Hampshire, all 505 of them, pushed their way through the shaken and disordered survivors of Strong's brigade to the water-filled ditch, where, in the words of one survivor, quote, All regimental action ceased, and each action became an individual one. In the darkness and chaos, as the men of the 100th New York came up, they fired into the ranks of the 48th New York of Strong's Brigade, causing numerous casualties. Meanwhile, the last of Putnam's regiments, the 67th and 62nd Ohio, managed to get another 100 men up the slope and into the southeast bastion, where they found themselves jumbled together with some of Strong's men who were still clinging to a foothold there. But even Putnam himself was unable to do much at that point, since no two men seems to be from the same company, let alone the same regiment. In the words of one survivor, the bullet-swept bastion was a, quote, carnival of death. Putnam sent messengers back through the maelstrom to request support by fresh troops, but the reserve brigade down the beach was never committed to the fight. Command and control of the federal attack had dissolved into confusion. Seymour had been wounded, and Gilmore was increasingly out of touch with the tactical situation. 
Reinforcements may or may not have enabled the Federals to expand their toehold in Wagner's southeast bastion, but as it was, no fresh troops were fed into the fight, and the Confederates, sensing victory, began to launch counterattacks of their own. The beleaguered Yankees were able to beat off two such counterattacks, but by then time was clearly running out. Putnam had just turned to Major Lewis Butler of the 67th Ohio and said, We had better get out of this, when a bullet blew off the back of his, that is Putnam's, head. After a hasty consultation with the surviving federal officers, Butler ordered a retreat. Many men, though, in the darkness and confusion, never got the word and continued the hopeless fight. Then, sensing the enemy collapse, the Confederates surged over the southeast bastion, killing or capturing every Yankee who remained. By 10.30, the desperate fight for Battery Wagner was over. Daylight revealed the full extent of the federal disaster. Tolliver wrote, quote, The scene of carnage is indescribable. I have never seen so many dead in the same space. At a cost of 36 killed and 145 wounded or missing, the Confederates had inflicted more than 1,500 casualties on the Federal attackers. The 54th Massachusetts suffered, suffered the heaviest loss, with over 280 men killed, wounded, missing and or presumed dead out of the 600 men the regiment took into the fight. Other regiments had paid almost as great a price, though. For example, the 7th New Hampshire alone accounted for 77 killed or mortally wounded, 11 of whom were officers. The Confederates stripped the Yankee dead of useful apparel and interesting souvenirs, then piled the bodies into mass graves. As a federal officer who had commanded black troops in combat, Robert Gould Shaw's body was singled out for what rebels considered the ultimate insult, that is, putting his body at the bottom of the trench and piling the bodies of his men on top of him. A few days later, when a party of federals under a flag of truce requested the return of Shaw's body, Colonel Johnson Haygood, Wagner's new commander, refused reportedly answering contemptuously, quote, We buried him in a trench with his niggers. Learning of Haygood's reply, Colonel Shaw's father asked federal authorities not to press the issue, explaining, I can imagine no holier place than that in which he is, among his brave and devoted followers, nor wish for him better company. the assault on July 18th proved a turning point for black soldiers, serving to dismiss any lingering skepticism among whites about the combat readiness of African-American troops. For example, in August, Ulysses S. Grant wrote to Abraham Lincoln, saying, I've given the subject of arming the Negro my hearty support. They will make good soldiers, and taking them from the enemy weakens him in the same proportion, they strengthen us. 
Lincoln himself, in a public statement several weeks after the attack on Wagner, said of black soldiers, quote, If they stake their lives for us, they must be prompted by the strongest motive, even the promise of freedom, and the promise being made must be kept. That promise, the payment of a nation's debt to some of its own, had impelled the men of the 54th Massachusetts and would impel tens of thousands of their fellow black soldiers to risk their lives for the preservation of the Union and the cause of freedom. As for the 54th, it would continue to serve another 26 months in Florida and South Carolina through September 1865 when the regiment finally returned to Boston. Besides the fighting at Battery Wagner, the 54th would also see heavy combat in Florida in February 1864. During its service, the regiment liberated hundreds of enslaved people in the Carolina Low Country, was the honor guard at the rededication ceremony at Fort Sumter in April 1865, and served in the occupation forces in Charleston that summer. Altogether, 1,442 men, black and white, served in the regiment from 1863 through September 1865. Ninety-three men, including Robert Gould Shaw, were killed in action or were mortally wounded. Another 107 died from disease or accident, and 34 died while prisoners of war. While the 54th's participation in the war didn't end with the failed assault on Battery Wagner in July 1863, it's safe to say that day was the high point of its service. As the editor of the New York Times reminded its readers, quote, It is not too much to say that if this Massachusetts 54th had faltered when its trial came, 200,000 colored troops for whom it was the pioneer would never have been put into the field. But it did not falter. It made Fort Wagner such a name to the colored race as Bunker Hill has been for 90 years to white Yankees. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Where Death and Glory Meet, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th Massachusetts Infantry by Russell Duncan. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we want to thank the newest members for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Jersey S., Chris P., Jason H., and Mark H., Cami B., James C., Patrick, and Will. And thanks to Matt F. and Rob S. for their donations. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.